Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's May 24th, 1969, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. The bubblegum pop craze of the late 60s and early 70s left us with a wealth of saccharine, mindless earworms, from yummy, yummy, yummy to goody, goody gumdrops. But it was today in history in 1969 that the world was introduced to the most saccharine and mindless earworm of them all, Sugar Sugar by the Archies, which will go on to become the best-selling song of 1969. Not bad for a band who quite literally only existed on paper. And 1969 was not a year devoid of bangers, let me tell you. Suspicious Minds, Get Back, Honky Tonk Women... (laughs) Um, And yet the biggest hit, the number one song of the year, as you said, was Sugar Sugar by the Archies. And the reason that you say they didn't exist, and I didn't know this, I did not know this until we started researching the episode today, is that the band were cartoon characters like gorillas. Yeah, so the band were part of the Archie show, which launched in the autumn of 1968. And that was a show that followed the life of this group of Riverdale High School students, Archie Andrew, hence Archie Show, and his friends Reggie, Veronica, Betty and Jughead. And together that gang are a band and they have these songs. Don't forget the dog. There was a dog as well. Yes, of course, and Hot Dog. Yeah, but Hot Dog wasn't a member of the band, <laughs> critically. <laughs> well, he didn't have opposable thumbs. Yeah, a bit of a problem. Could have bucked. Anyway, but the, but the whole show was kind of a vehicle not dissimilar to the Monkees for pop singles, and this was the most successful one that they ever released. Yeah, and it has a direct connection to the Monkees as well. And that connection is Don Kirshner. He was the music supervisor on the Monkees and kind of their manager until they had this very bitter falling out. And he realised that his original plan, which had been to create a fictional band who'd be really easy to control, had failed. But a cartoon fictional (laughs) band would surely cause no issues. So he assembled a team of studio musicians who would actually play the song, safe in the knowledge that they would forever remain unseen and could easily be replaced at will. (laughs) Maybe maybe in print they had more personality. But I'm looking at this music video and thinking these, ostensibly, yeah, they're sort of all-American teenagers, white bread, picket fence type, dancing 1960s types. But what are they? Mm. Like, what, what is well, the character on display here? Like, the, it's so... It's, why... Why make them so anodyne? <laughs> yeah, okay, well, the, the anodyneness is really coded into the DNA of Archie. So the Archie comic strip was created first in 1941 for Pep Comics. I'm starting to think everything in American culture has its roots as a comic strip. <laughs> and it was created at the behest of its publisher, John Goldwater, who specifically wanted something that tapped into the popularity of Andy Hardy. And that was like a series of movies in the 30s that had Mickey Rooney in them, and Mickey Rooney played Andy Hardy, who was the all-American boy, and basically nothing. Thing really happened in them mm. and I think John Goldwater saw how popular a movie series about a small town boy who doesn't really do anything was and thought well that's an easy that's easy material for a comic we'll just do the same thing and yeah in a music video it is very hard to communicate the appeal of Archie and Riverdale more generally. <laughs> but it's because for Kirshner having come from the monkeys which as we said in our episode about the monkeys was all about counterculture and yes okay maybe presenting 60s 
drug culture, basically, drug youth culture to a mixed family uh, sitting room audience in a vaguely non-threatening way was nonetheless about an actual movement that had, you know, politics behind it and and resistance and revolution. It's weird that that guy would then be attracted to something that doesn't this doesn't feel at all countercultural. This is like the safest thing in the world. And in a way, I suppose it was part of a response to these huge trends that were buffeting the United States at the time, from Woodstock to the Vietnam War, Charles Manson. Also, I suppose you've got the breakup of the Beatles. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's swirling around at this moment, to which the answer could easily be bubblegum pop. Though, on the other hand, that was the very reason why at first radio stations wouldn't play it, because so many of them who heard it just were like, well, this is fluff, and they didn't want anything to do. Do with it. But it apparently came back to a single radio program in San Francisco that decided to put the song out on the airwaves one day in the spring of 1969, and then just watched as the telephone lines lit up with more and more listeners requesting to hear it again, I suppose because it does have that immediate earworm thing that you hear it once and you got to go back to it and scratch that itch and hear it again. And another unusual way of promoting the single and ensuring that the music reached its target audience, which was really, you know, prepubescent children, was that it was printed onto cereal boxes. The record could be pressed onto thinly coated cardboard, which was then printed out as the back of a cereal box as a, as a cheap, low so quality record, that. which you just, you could cut it out and play it. It didn't, the quality wasn't great and it wouldn't last many plays, but still pretty good. The Monkees and the Jackson 5 had also used this method. It was kind of a thing for a while. Wouldn't you break your record player though? You'd be worried about your needle getting stuck. <laughs> I'd have a c- cardboard record player. Got to buy a lot of cereal. <laughs> well, once it was out, it was such a massive hit. It spent 22 weeks in the building. Billboard Hot 100. Four of those weeks were at number one. It was also a number one hit in the UK and Canada, and it went on to reach gold status, selling nearly a million copies in 1969 alone. Yeah, in the US, it was the eighth best-selling song of the 1960s, the entire decade. It beat I Heard It Through the Grapevine and Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, as well as dozens of other great songs. But the only reason, I guess, that there would be a surprise about that, because it is an amazing pop song, right? Mm is that it's a cartoon band. But if you leave that aside, and they weren't even the first cartoon band, of course, that would be Alvin and the Chipmunks in the previous decade. The musical DNA of the song was, I mean, you wouldn't want to say bulletproof because obviously people can, you know, create a flop. But I mean, the the songwriters were, were Jeff Barry and Andy Kim. Barry had co-written Be My Baby, Then He Kissed Me, Chapel of Love and Leader of the Pack. So you've got a pretty good good run right there. Well, that pedigree did contribute to a song that has subsequently been really subject to attempts to explain what was so nagging about it. And a musicologist from York University, Rob Bowman, he suggests that it's really to do with the sort of conversation between the vocals and the keyboard line, Mm. like that that's really seductive. So it's not... Sugar, sugar. It's the yeah. That's the bit that you you can't you can't have one without the yeah. other, can you? It's like Big Mac and Heartburn. <laughs> then I found this interesting as well from a Toronto music and culture writer, Sarah Liss, who was basically suggesting that there are hidden depths to the lyric. She said, I loved the wistfulness of the verses, which always felt like they were tinged with more nostalgia and longing than the song itself lets on. I think she's suggesting that it's about kind of looking back on a love that you used to have that you don't have anymore. And 
also, I suppose, now the layered nostalgia, you know, the reason it's an ongoing hit is that there's layered nostalgia for the era looking back to the 60s from today. Yeah, and I mean, music for children is a huge money-spinning industry all of itself now. But at the time, you know, Mike John, who was the New York Times' rock critic, he wrote in November 1969 that the success of the record was due to the fact that it targeted a then-neglected demographic. Children, quote, too old for Snow White and too young for the Beatles or Bob Dylan. So it kind of was one of the foundational steps in the whole idea of music being released specifically to target that very young market. Mm. But also, it's just not irritating no. like other music for children, is it? Which is weird because it is so um, sticky and earwormy. Yeah. But at the same time, you can imagine if you're an adult driving the car and it comes on, you're not going to turn it off the radio. It worms its way into everybody. Uh, I saw a brilliant quote, actually, from Dawn Eden, who's a writer for Mojo, who said, um, Power Pop aims for your heart and your feet. Bubblegum aims for any part of your body it can get as long as you buy the damn record. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, isn't it? It's True. almost like... It's irresistible. Yeah. You can't, it's only two minutes, 47 seconds long as yeah. well. Even if you're not in the mood, you're like, well, this will be over soon. <laughs> One of the funny things is that they then went on to produce an album, which I saw this Rolling Stone piece about was saying it was the Archies trying to be taken seriously, much like the monkeys. Tom Collection must have been tearing to, his hair out at this point. How do I keep falling into this Even problem? Even cartoons don't want to be <laughs> <Yeah>. my <problem. laughs> Because, well, according to Rolling Stone, Sunshine, which was the Archies' third album from 1970, was trying to be really, really relevant and it had this sort of eco-pop message in it. Uh, that was after Jughead got into Transcendental Metal. Right, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Archies ultimately released five albums as well as a greatest hits compilation. So I would say they are probably, you know, among the top 1% of successful bands of all time. <laughs> you go and see them live and they're like, yeah, we'll do anything. We're not going to play Sugar Sugar. It's just <laughs> a bit dumb. Tomorrow. I'm also not sure I'd want to live in the house that Shakespeare either lived or died in. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospector. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.